starting a new series tonight called Calvary Distinctives. What that is, we're going to teach this book right here. A lot of you already have it. I saw many copies coming in. Mine's a little older, so it's got a white cover. A lot of the newer ones, I think, have a darker cover, but same book. And we're going to teach a little bit about a few chapters. And then once again, don't forget Holy Spirit. That's also in the book. That'll be next week. And then after that series ends, when school starts back, we'll also be starting the book of Romans. But tonight is more the distinctives. And we're going to cover two topics. But maybe you're kind of unsure what is Calvary Chapel about. This is a perfect next three weeks to kind of find out. And if you want to know more than what we're going to explain, you can also buy the book in the bookstore and read the whole book yourself. Um, but nationwide, there's about 1,800, give or take, what I would call official Calvary chapels, because there is a national oversight that kind of sanctions when you want to be one. There's probably a few smaller ones that aren't in that list, and it was started back in 1965 by a pastor named Chuck Smith, the same guy that wrote this book that we're going to talk about the next three weeks. But when it started, it was 25 people. 25 people, now it's 1,800. And we're non-denominational, we're not a denomination, but we're sometimes big as some of the bigger denominations. But I found a quote as I was studying this. I don't think this is in the book. I found this, I think, online, but let me read it to you. This is a quote about what was happening back in the mid to early 70s. It said, Chuck Smith was not attempting to create a new denomination but what emerged was a loose fellowship of like-minded people. That's kind of what we are even here at Calvary Chapel Melbourne and Vieira, Sebastian, and Espanol. We're a loose fellowship of like-minded people because, as you know, we don't really have membership. But that really describes all the Calvaries. In other words, there's no regional board overseeing them. They're a loose affiliation that does have sort of a national oversight. But the real question is, because we're calling this distinctives, then what makes us distinct? Why are we different? Well, we're not totally unique. That would be maybe sometimes strange if we were so distinct, nobody else was like us in the whole nation. But we're a little different than some of the denominations, and we'll get to that the next few weeks as we explain these topics. And really, that could be a long, long explanation, by the way. So my short answer to that long question would be, Calvary is about balance, Balance in everything. Like, we don't really do extremes. Because some of the positions I'll talk about tonight, you got one extreme way over here, one extreme way over here. Calvary Chapel more lines up in the middle about most of these topics. And week three will be kind of about balance. That's one of our subjects. I don't want to spend too much time on that one. But it's a good little kind of overall oversight. You could think we're balanced in our beliefs about the Holy Spirit, we're balanced in the way we teach the Word. We're balanced in sort of how we do worship, things like that. But keep in mind, not every Calvary Chapel looks the same. They're similar. I like to call them, in, in my word, is cousins. We're all first cousins. It's similar worship, similar style of teaching. But even our three campuses, four if you count our Spanish service going on right now, we're a little different in each service. Right now, we're teaching all the same verses on the weekend, but each pastor writes their own message, and they kind of tweak it individually because they're all different people. So each Calvary you go to may look a little different, but you'll find the same basic things, and we'll get to that in a second. In other words, it's a little individualized, but in the general idea, it will be very similar. There's other Calvaries right here in Brevard County, by the way, and we don't look exactly like them, but we're very similar to them. Like the first Calvary in this whole area was in Merritt Island. That one's still there. But from Melbourne and Palm Bay, that's a long way. We're a lot closer, so most of you are here at Calvary Melbourne. And we're glad you're here, by the way. Thank you for coming. And as you just saw, we did modern praise and worship. You'll mostly see modern praise and worship at the Calvaries. Not a whole lot of old hymns, one every now and then, but not a ton. And then also what you'll see normally is expositional or line-by-line -line Bible teaching which we will do tonight too, by the way. Even though it's a topical message in a way, I will weave in some line by line. You'll see what I mean toward maybe the midway point. And Calvary's known for line by line teaching. And, and what we really do with that though, we're also known for pointing people as we teach to Jesus. In other words, it's not some guy, me, Dave, Brian, whoever up here giving you some motivational speech. That's not a sermon. That's a motive. It's, it might encourage you, but it's not a motivation. That's not what we do. We teach the Bible and point all the scriptures because we, we don't have to really do it. They all point to Jesus. In a way, Jesus makes my job easy. I just got to kind of focus our attention on the Lord. 
And that's what Calvary does. So with all that being said, let's get to our first topic. We're going to cover two topics tonight. The first one is grace. We're going to talk about grace. We just sang about mercy. We're going to talk about grace. They're kind of connected, but they're different. And you'll see what I mean when we get there. And Calvary's not unique, by the way, in their position on grace, but we are a little unique in the fact we focus on it, we emphasize it, we teach it, we kind of make sure you are aware of it because it's very important to know. Because grace is how God deals with me. He's how he deals with you. We want God's grace, don't we? So we kind of need to understand it a little bit. And if we're going to teach in on it, and it's the way God deals with the human race. There's another way you can maybe think about that. Well, how does he do that? Let me read you a line or two. Here's, here's how I kind of summed it up. God accepts the unacceptable. He's kind to the undeserving. He shows favor to the unfavorable, and he blesses the unworthy. And in a way, that's all of us. We're, let me read those just the words. We're unacceptable, undeserving, unfavorable, and unworthy. But he gives it to us anyway. He gave us salvation. That's what grace is all about. But, but here's what we have to remember. He gave that to me and you, so he expects us to pay it forward. He expects us to do that same thing. Accept the unacceptable. Be kind to the undeserving, et cetera, et cetera. But we're sinners, and it's hard for us to do. So we have to have the help of the Holy Spirit, which is why you want to come next week to learn how to be filled with the Spirit. But let's talk a minute about grace and mercy, because grace and mercy go hand in hand. Mercy, like we just sung about, is kind of getting forgiven for our sin or forgiving for something I've done. And a good way to kind of differentiate the two between grace and mercy, a lot of us use this story, a lot of us pastors, um, think if I left here tonight and I go out on Minton, and I'm not going to do this, by the way, but just play along with me, theoretically, I'm going 60 and a 40. What do I deserve if I'm doing 60 and a 40? A ticket, exactly, because there's a police station right down the street, and it's likely he might pull me over. There's a lot of them that come out of there. So what I deserve would be a ticket, a fine, possibly even hauled to jail, because that is a crime. So we'll pretend I got pulled over for doing 16 to 40. I rolled down my window. The policeman asked me, Dave, Mr. Mars, do you know you're speeding? And of course, we all no, I didn't. But, you know, do we really know? Yeah, come on now. Usually we kind of know. We may not know exactly, but we know we were going faster than we should have been. So he goes back. He takes my license. He runs my plates. I don't have any outstanding warrants, so I'm kind of okay in his eyes. He comes back and says, you know what? I'm going to let you off. That would be mercy. I didn't get what I deserved, which was a fine, a ticket, a punishment. But then he still got my license. I see him back my bumper. He's kind of making me wonder, what in the world is he doing back there? He comes back to my window and says, you know what? I've got four tickets to SeaWorld, and I think I want to give them to you. That would be grace, because not just did I get forgiven for something I did, I got a bonus that I wasn't even really thinking about. That's what our salvation's like. Our grace is getting something, not just getting forgiven for what we did do, it's getting an extra bonus like eternity with God and Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. That's something even you can't imagine. It's a free gift, and we can't earn it, we can't pay for it, we can't work our way to it. It's an extra bonus of grace. So that's the difference between grace and mercy. That makes sense? Okay, so let's talk a little more about grace because there's another, you know, I told you we're on the extreme, we're in the middle. If you think of grace, or really I would call hyper-grace, and we'll talk about that in a second, hyper-grace would be waiver on one extreme. Legalism, or you might think of it as rules and regulations, would be on the other. So those are the two extremes. And there's churches, denominations, pastors, teachers, Bible studies, that kind of focus on even those two extremes. It's all about rules and regulations. You have to earn your way to heaven. You have to be a good person. You have to do all these good works. You have to be a Christian, but also do all these good things. That's right now what Scripture says. Now, we're created to do good works. We can't just coast through life doing nothing because God has gifted us all. That's what Pastor Dave was teaching on this weekend. But on the other hand, there's the other extreme that I would call cheap grace. And we'll get to that in a second. But 
this legalism kind of belief, let's talk about the other side, the one I brought up about rules, regulations. You'll hear it called legalism a lot. Well, that one is more like people believe that God only gives salvation or gives opportunity, blesses special people, a small group of special people that obey all the rules and mostly get them all right. Think about the religious leaders that came against Jesus. That's what they believed. It was all about rules and regulations. But it's not just the Pharisees. There's plenty of modern-day Pharisees that focus more or less on the same thing. It's all about work, 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 work your way to heaven. But it's not about that. Our God is a gracious God. We just talked about grace. He loves us. And he doesn't expect us to be perfect. It's not about perfection. We do have to try to be like Jesus, but we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. It's a hard thing to do. We don't deserve it. I already mentioned that once. But here's, here's another thing we have to think about. Remember, I told you God wants us to pay it forward. If we're going to think, act, and be like Jesus, we have to forgive others like we were forgiven. We have to give that grace. And here's the other reality. They probably don't deserve it. They did something to offend me, to offend you. They treated us terribly. So in my mind, they don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. But you know what? Neither did I. Neither did you. God says, pay it forward. Treat them like I treated you. It's a command. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at a verse on screen. I will have a lot of verses on screen tonight. This is our first one. Look in Matthew 6. Here's what it says. Pretty simple. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive us. But, look what the but says. But if you do not forgive others for their sins, your Father, God, will not forgive me and you. Then look at Colossians 3.13. Makes that whole long paragraph just a few words. Forgive as God forgave you. Pretty simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's just simple. So we, once again, that's something we have to pray to the Holy Spirit like next Wednesday to help me do this because it's super hard. He just wants us to depend on him for the power to do that. Once again, doesn't expect perfection. He just expects us to call out and say, Lord, I'm struggling here with this forgiveness, this grace, this mercy, because that person did this, this, and this. And God says, I know, I know, I see them, but I'm talking to you, you forgive them. That's what he tells us. But how do we do that? Well, really, it's just about giving people a break when they fall short. But it's also about giving ourselves a break when we fall short. Because, you know, sometimes we can be our own worst critic. We can beat ourselves up for what we should have done, should have thought, should have said, should have behaved. God is a forgiving God. He's full of grace, full of mercy. So we have to kind of let that go in our own case. But also, if we make mistakes, we have to forgive others' mistakes the same way. And all we're really doing, we're letting that person or ourselves, either one, get what I call a do-over. We're just giving them a chance what we got when we became believers, we became Christ followers. We got to start over and do life the way God designed it. That's what this grace is about, is giving people the chance to start over, even if they made a mistake toward us, offended us, hurt us, did something wrong. They might be in the wrong, and we may not be the one in the wrong. That's not what God's concerned about. He wants me and you to make a choice of giving out his grace to other people. And really, it encompasses everything. It's about our behavior, my attitude, or the circumstances of life, how we treat each other. Brings up our first point if you're taking notes. If you're taking notes tonight, you can write this one down. God's grace is complete. It covers every scenario I could possibly stand up here and rattle on about. It's a long list, so I can't do it. it, it everything. Just think of it. God's grace covers everything. But we get that same grace that covers our everything. It's a win-win. We get it, so we are supposed to show it and pay it forward. But just so we're clear, it's not grace plus, because I kind of give the illustration of legalism being way over here. It's also a danger zone when you kind of, maybe you're not that far over on that extreme, but you have grace in the middle, then you start putting rules on top of grace. 
Remember, that's what the early church did when they tried to lay all those rules on the Gentiles. And they wanted to get circumcised and et cetera and do all the Jewish rituals. And the early apostles going, we can't even do that ourselves, and we're Jewish. Why are we laying that on the Gentiles? And so they kind of rethought what they were doing, and they said, you know what? Let's just keep it simple. We don't need all. They were trying to add rules and regulations back on grace. So it's grace alone, not grace plus. And here's a great thing to think about. It's grace plus nothing, plus nothing. It's just grace. Keep it simple, Grace. Free gift, those free tickets I describe in my little fake scenario, it's a free gift we didn't even deserve. So we're not just forgiven for what we did do, it's a bonus. And we need to pay that bonus forward to our friends, our neighbors, our unsaved world around us. Because grace covers it all. Another verse we can look at, 2 Corinthians. Let's look at that one. Look what 2 Corinthians says. Pretty simple again. But he said to me, because once again... They were trying to complicate things. My grace is sufficient. Jesus says, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your, my, your weakness. It's grace alone. We can't add, subtract, put things with it. Jesus is telling us, keep it simple. Just give the grace I gave to you. But it's especially important in areas of our lives where we're weak, because we all have a weakness. We all stumble over something. Maybe we have an anger problem. Maybe there's a substance problem. Maybe we're not very forgiving. This grace we're talking about, we want it. We want it back. God, I can't do that thing. I need grace. I can't really forgive people. I'm struggling. But then somebody offends me, and I don't want to give it back out. I want it, but I'm not too open to give it. It's a lifelong process of learning to be like Jesus. That's really where it is. And really, God's grace can shine the brightest in our weakest areas. That's why he said, my power is made perfect in your weakness. But let's talk about this cheap grace for a minute. I told you we'd bring that one back up. It's almost the opposite. If, once again, if legalism is way over here, then this hyper grace, you'll hear it's called hyper grace sometime, or I use the term cheap grace. Because to me... It cheapens the idea of God's great gift of his grace. And what that would look like, and there's people, unfortunately, that teach this, promote this, and it's sometimes pastors, denominations. What they would say would be, you know what? You're not perfect. Don't worry about you. Keep messing up. Don't worry about this sinful behavior you have. Don't worry about really trying to get rid of that sin problem. Just come back and ask for forgiveness every week. Just come back and repent. Just tell God you're sorry, and then there's no real urge to change. There's no real urge when you believe this hyper grace or this cheap grace. There's no real incentive to repent and be like Jesus. You just come back and get some more grace. Does that sound like what the Bible says to you? No, but it's out there, so be careful. And you won't hear it. You're not going to hear a sermon titled Cheap Grace. They're not that dumb. But if you listen to the words of some of these guys, I would call great, they're great speakers sometimes, they're motivational speakers, they're weaving in a concept that I would make the case is cheap grace or hyper grace, if you will. God wants us to mourn for our sin. We talked a few weeks ago about in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, mourn for your sin like it's a death in your family, like it's your only child. If, if you don't see great, I mean, sin is a problem, are you going to mourn it like that? No, you're just going to come back, okay, I'll get some more grace. I don't have to change. I can behave terribly and just go back and ask again for forgiveness. Well, once again, the Bible addresses this. Let's just look at a verse together. Romans chapter 6. And by the way, we're covering Romans after we do these short three weeks. So we'll get to this chapter and this verse eventually. But look what it says. Cheap grace. What shall we say then? Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that our grace may increase? Should we? No, the answer is right there in verse 2. By no means, he says, we are those who have died to our sin. In other words, we died to our old self. We're trying to be like Jesus. We're not there yet, but we're at least trying. How can we live in it, our sin, any longer? In other words, I can't be comfortable. You can't be comfortable living a sinful lifestyle. And I'm not saying, by the way, we can't also overcomplicate this one. None of us are perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to slip on the weekend, possibly. 
But hopefully as we grow in Christ, those slips become less and less frequent. It's not perfection. But I can never think, oh, I can just sin and come back and get some more grace next week. That's what that verse is addressing. Paul says, by no means should I ever think that way. I'm cheapening God's free gift of grace if I think that. And he says we're dead to sin. Other verses, I'm not, I don't have time to bring them all up, but other verses tell us, we'll probably cover these when we teach Romans, it says God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit, here we go, good reason to be here next week again, the Holy Spirit is how we say no to sin. When he moves in to live inside us, that's how we say no. It's not me or you at all. It's us in the power of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm tempted, I see that thing, but you know what? Holy Spirit says, don't do it. I am walking away and getting away from that temptation. I am leaving the area. That's how we resist. But it's the Holy Spirit helping. It's a partnership. It's not me at all, but I can never be comfortable living in an active, sinful lifestyle. In other words, I'm a willing, behaving badly. It's not an accident. I didn't slip. I didn't mess up one time or over the weekend. It's a daily, willful behavior of sin. That's what Paul's addressing here. Next, another problem in this grace theory. Once again, where Calvary's more in the middle or balanced. Some people, and it kind of ties with this hyper grace in a way, they really overly focus on the Savior portion of the Jesus equation, and they kind of minimize the Lord. They like the Savior, don't like that Lord thing so much. And here's why. We all love Savior, right? We all want to be saved. We all love our Savior and our salvation. We all want that one. But Lord means he's in charge. That one is a lot harder. We all want Savior. Not everybody's comfortable with Lord. In other words, I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll obey when I want to. But if I got this other thing in my life, maybe I'll just kind of overlook that whole scripture on that one. Jesus is not the Lord of my life if I'm thinking that way. Lord means boss. It's not Greek, but it means boss. He's in charge. He's in control. So we can't minimize the Lord. And here's some facts for you. I dug up some facts just to kind of prove my point here. The New Testament, so that way you can't say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. The New Testament, it uses the word for Lord, which is called kurios, 748 times. 667 of those times are about Jesus or God, which is really the same thing. And I'll give you an example. In Romans 1, 4, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 667 times it mentions Lord. This might even shock you. The word Savior in the New Testament, 24 times. 24 times. That word's called Sotor, by the way. So, 667, 24. Which one do you think Scripture is trying to emphasize? Lord. 667 uses of Lord, 24 uses of Savior. Both very important. I would never want to minimize Jesus' work on the cross, our salvation. We need a Savior. If you don't have a Savior, if you're not saved, you're not sure you're saved, come see me at the end tonight and we'll pray a prayer together and we can fix that. I can't fix it, but God can. You can meet your Savior here tonight. He maybe nudge you as some of these verses hit you. But it's about making Jesus our Lord, not just Savior. Otherwise, we're minimizing that work on the cross he did. But once again, let's check a verse. Don't believe Dave. Let's, how about we listen to Jesus? Are you okay with Jesus? Let's look. Luke 6.46. Here we go. Jesus' own words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But look what he says. You don't do what I say. In other words, what he's really saying, if you think about it, you like to save your part. You're not so wild about the Lord part. He's calling people out. Maybe he's calling us out. We have to give him complete control of our life, or else he's not really our Lord. It's all lip service, and that's what Jesus is addressing in that verse. Okay, are you exhausted with grace yet? We're going to move on. Topic number two, love. How about love? Because we're going to do kind of two a night. Tonight is grace and love. Next week is all more focused on the Holy Spirit. Then we'll pick two more for that third week. But one of God's primary commands, you'll know the verses, is to love each other. Not just to love him, but to love one another. But believe it or not, that might be one of the hardest ones to do. 
Because even in the grace section I talked about, remember, God loves the unlovable. God loves the undeserving. He wants me and you to do the same thing. So it's a hard command to keep if you think about it. And here's why it's hard, I think. We kind of know it's hard, so we want to simplify it or what I would call dumb it down, make it easier on ourselves. Because we like it easy if we're honest. And how we dumb that one down, we want to love the people we like. Love the people you like. That's a song, I think. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus says love the unlovable, love the difficult. Look at the people in Scripture he loved. Lepers, outcasts, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. We don't have all those titles today. We have some of them. But we're supposed to love everybody like Jesus loved us, not just the ones we like. Once again, how about we listen to Jesus? Don't listen to me. Let's pull up another verse of Jesus. John 13. John 13. Here we go. A new what? Not an idea, not a suggestion, a new command, which means serious stuff. Love one another as I loved you. In other words, love each other just like God loved me and you. So you must love one another. And I put, that's my parentheses, by the way, even the unlovable. And that's what he means. He doesn't need my help, but we can't simplify, minimize it. Love one another, even those we would might consider unlovable. But look what it says the result is in 35, if we do this. By this, by loving the unlovable, by showing the love of Jesus to everybody, everybody will know that you're his disciple. There will be any doubt as if he, he's your Lord. If we love people like Jesus did, we've kind of doing okay probably in the Lord area. Not completely because we're all imperfect, but if we love the unlovable, we, we look like his disciples. But look what he says at the end, if, there's an if, if you love one another. And you can almost flip that around and infer if we don't do that, what he's really telling us is you're not really my disciple. You're working on it. You're a work in progress, but you probably need the Holy Spirit's help. And if you do, come next Wednesday. I'm kind of repeating that. As you, if, you, <laughs> if you're watching online, get up here next week. You don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. But to understand the true meaning of this word, because, you know, we've done this before. We've talked about this word over and over here at Calvary Melbourne, all our campuses. In English, we have the word love, and that's it. Well, in the Greek, there's four different versions, but this is a different kind of use of this word. Let me make sure I pronounce it right. Agapao, agapao. And we would think it's agape or, or agape is really, I think, the correct way to say that, by the way. This is the verb form. Agape would be the noun. Agapao is the verb. And verb, if we got any English teachers in here, I know there's one because it's my mom. They know grammar. Verbs are action words. It's about an action, a doing something. When we read these love verses that we're going to get to, including the one I just read, it's an action. And the action is to love one another. It requires our action, my action. So in other words, it's not a feeling. It's an action, not a feeling. Because what we want to do, once again, to kind of dumb it down, well, I don't feel like loving that person. They're rude and mean and considerate, and they treat me terribly. I don't love them. God says I have to. It's a command, remember? The feeling type of love, that's more for each other, your family, your friends, the easily lovable. The agapao is the hard version. And it's really what I would call a decision. It's a choice. It's a decision we make. Kind of like forgiveness. Earlier this year, back in January, I, I kind of talked on the weekend about forgiveness. I made the case it's a choice. This love like God has in some ways is the same way. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not something I can't do if I don't want to. I have to mentally decide I'm going to love others because Jesus commanded me to. So let's kind of look and see what this agapao is defined. Let's look at a sort of a couple of summary points about it. Here we go. It's a sacrificial. In other words, it's not just out of abundance. It's a sacrifice. It's a giving type of love. But look at that next part. Without expecting anything in return. I cannot expect anything. It's not why I'm doing it. If I'm given to get, that's a bad motivation. Pastor Dave talked about that this weekend. Look at the next one. 
it's so great and it's such a great concept that it's given out to the ones that really are unlovable and undeserving, unappealing. It's people that we normally wouldn't love. We have to choose to love them. This can be our own family, by the way, the third one. It's a love that loves others even when they don't want it, even when they reject it, even when they disown me or you. We still are called by Scripture to love them because it's a choice. That's the last one. It's a love that we choose, but that's, look at the second half of that sentence. The good news is we can learn to have it because it's not a natural type of love. Your friendship love, your family love, that's the more natural one. This one is the hard one. We have to sometimes learn it. We have to learn what the verses say about it, learn what Jesus talked about, and then learn how to ask the Holy Spirit to help us have it. It's a learned type of love. So the good news is if we don't have it, we can learn to get it. Isn't that good news? Yes, because it's hard. Trust me. Um, This verse won't be on screen, but I'll read it to you. You'll know this one, too. Let's go back to Jesus' words again. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get for that? Are not even the tax collectors doing that, which was kind of one of the worst sinners in their time? He says, even those big sinners do that kind of love. You have to take it up a notch if you're my disciple. You have to love the unlovable, love the ones you don't want to love, choose to do it. Which brings up our second point if you're taking notes. To be able to choose this type of love, this agapao, we need the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a natural tendency. We have to have help. And Remember Jesus? He said, I must go away to give you the helper. I have to give you the one that will help you live life like I'm calling you to do. The Holy Spirit is who he gave us to help in these type of areas. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, remember I told you we are going to do a few line-by-line verses. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have your Bible or you just have the Calvary Distinctive, it's okay. I'm going to read all these verses to us. But if you want to follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. He's writing a letter to the early church in Corinth. He says, 13.1, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, our topic, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul's telling us he might have a, what some people would call a great spiritual gift. He might even be using and practicing it. But if he didn't have love to go with it, it's worthless. It's meaningless. It's like a child beating on a drum and a cymbal aggravating their parents. Anybody have a kid that beats drums and cymbals and crazy noises, pots and pans even? I think I did that when I was a kid, beat on pots and pans, drove my parents nuts. That's what this gift is like if love isn't mixed with it. It's empty noise. But interesting enough, in that verse, he talks about the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I don't want to dodge it either because next week will be Holy Spirit night. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men, that would be a language we can understand. Now, it could be a foreign language that we didn't know, he didn't know. That would be one version of tongues, by the way. But in modern times, that's a pretty rare gift. It exists. We believe at Calvary it exists. But it's kind of God gives that for special reasons. I was even talking to a gentleman today. He was telling me a story about um, a missionary in Africa, a a group of missionaries. They went way out in the tribal area, and they were able to converse, and they couldn't figure out why, and they finally realized, these people don't know English. We have no idea what they're speaking, but we're having this conversation. And they didn't believe in the gifts, by the way, but they realized later that must have been tongues because otherwise it wouldn't have worked. So it can happen, but I would call it rare nowadays. The other version he talked about, the tongues of angels, is more like what we would see nowadays. This is what I would call more the modern-day version of tongues. And we would here at Calvary make the case that's a private prayer language between you and God. And once again, I'm not going to get too deep in that. Pastor Dave may cover that next week. But it's really the only reasonable explanation because Paul says in that verse, if I would reread it, if I speak in the tongues of men or if I speak in the tongues of angels. So apparently he could do both. 
But here's the possibilities about this tongues of angels, because that can be a head-scratcher if you're not used to reading or hearing this kind of stuff. It might be, this tongues of angels, a, a language that humans had at one point. For example, I'll just make something up. Don't quote me on this one. But we don't really know what language Adam and Eve spoke. We don't know. Maybe it's a dead language like that. Or it may not be a human language at all, because Paul called it an angelic language. He said the tongues of angels. So when people have the modern-day gifts of tongue, it's a private prayer language. They're speaking an unknown tongue, but it's a prayer to God. It's more of a private thing. That's why you don't see us practice it in the middle of a sermon. If one of you stood up and tried, I might say, can somebody interpret that? And I would say, no, then be, be quiet. We're having a service here. You know, it, it's a private thing. And next week you'll probably hear more about that because I don't want to get once again too deep in that. But the, the takeaway is, the reason I want to touch on it, Paul clearly says that he can do it. So there's scriptural proof that men can speak some, men and women, by the way, when it says men, it means everybody, some sort of angelic language to the Lord. Maybe we'll hear more about it next week. Think of this little section, and I'm moving on right now. Maybe it's an appetizer for next week. Think of it like that. It'll give you a taste of what's to come. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2, the next verse. It says, he goes on. He mentioned tongues. Now he's going to move on to other gifts. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, the deep mysteries of God, if you will, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I don't have love, look what he says. I'm nothing. If I have prophecy, faith to move a mountain, I can do miracles. If I don't have love to go with it, it's nothing. And apparently the early church must have been struggling with this because Paul is writing this letter to correct them. And here's, I think, the warning that's contained there. The first warning would be, to understand these deep mysteries of God is great, but without that agapao love we talked about, it's just empty head knowledge. It's great knowledge, but it has no practical use. It's just empty knowledge. Chuck Smith, in this book we're teaching the next few weeks, I did find a, a quote from Pastor Chuck, who's now passed away a long time ago, by the way. It's our third point if you're taking notes. I liked it so much I made it a point. Here's what he says, and it's a quote from Chuck. It's more important to have the right attitude, and what he meant by that is love, more important to have the right attitude than to have the right answers. I love that. In other words, don't get too caught up on explaining everything, learning everything. That can be a form of legalism. It's more important that I have the right attitude, and you too, than the right answers. And that attitude is loving each other. The second warning, I think, contained in that other verse, from verse 2, it's not just about these deep mysteries. It's don't covet a miracle ability. If you could do miracles, that would be great. But if you didn't love people, it wouldn't matter. It's not about a miraculous gift either. It's better to have love than a miraculous gift. Even if I could heal people and raise the dead, love would be better is what this verse says. Love would be better. And really, these kind of gifts aren't our goal, to speak in tongues, to heal the sick. That's a good thing, by the way, but I shouldn't put that above everything. Jesus gave us our two goals. Let's look at a verse in Matthew, Matthew 22. We know these, but it's good to review them. Look what Jesus, remember they asked him, what are the greatest two commandments? In other words, out of those ten, Jesus, what's the big two? Here's what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and that's that agapao love, by the way and your soul with all your mind. That's the first commandment. So love God first. But look at the second one, verse 39. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor, everyone around you, even the unlovable, as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, all the principles hang on those two verses, or those two concepts. Those two commandments is how Jesus put it. Love is most important. Love God first. Even above our family, our friends, our spouses, our children, love God. He's Lord, remember. But then after we kind of get that one at least, not down, because we're always not going to be perfect in that one either. We have a selfish sin nature, thanks to Adam. Then we have to love each other the same way we love the Lord. 
And by the way, both those love words and that verse, even though we write it in English as love, it's that same agapao love, that sacrificial love that's giving the, the hard one, if you will. Well, if we're to love God completely, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we put him first in every area of our life. Remember, that goes with the Lord. I can't compartmentalize my life and say, I'll obey Jesus 90% of the time. But 10% is my portion. I have this secret thing I'm obsessed with. It could be money, possessions, a sinful behavior. Or maybe I'm just unsubmissive. I'm not going to forgive that person because I don't want to. Scripture says I need to forgive them. I'm not. That's my 10%. I'm going to disobey God. We don't think about that way, but that's really what we're saying. If I won't do what the command says, I'm being disobedient. So I'm really not putting God first. He's not Lord. 10% 10% is me being Lord. And it may be way bigger than 10%, by the way. And then that second part would be be just as concerned with others as we are ourselves. Just as concerned, equal. When it says love your neighbor, it means others. Because not everybody lives beside us on the same street. Our neighbors is everybody around us. But here's something to remember, too. It's not the idea we have to pick one. I, 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 I'm so focused on love, I don't care about any gifts. That's not what Paul says. Keep it in balance is what he's saying. Don't overvalue gifts at the expense of love. It's okay to have gifts. It's okay to want gifts. It's okay to desire gifts. We'll help you out next week to do that. But it never can be at the expense. We can have both. That's the great benefit of grace. We get both. We can have love and gifts. And by the way, there's many more gifts, other verses. I'm not going to talk about them right now, but it kind of minimizes tongues. Paul says it's one of the least important gifts. It's better to be a giver, a server, a volunteer, the gift of helps. That's way more important than tongues. So we also got to be careful coveting what I would call the wrong gift. Here's point number four if you're taking notes. We should use the gifts that we do have because we're all gifted. God gifted everybody in this room in one way or another. Use your gifts to show God's love. Use the gifts to show or demonstrate God's love. That's one of the things that makes us a little distinct here at Calvary Chapel. We don't have a monopoly on it. Other churches do well in this area too, by the way. None of these distinctives are totally unique to us, but we tend to focus on them. We tend to teach on them, promote them, help you guys understand them better, hopefully. Because some denominations... I won't call names, but you can figure out pretty quick who I'm talking about. They overly focus on the gifts. Gifts are supreme. Gifts are important. Even some denominations, by the way, would tell you if you don't have a certain gift, tongues being one of them, you're not saved. No tongues, no salvation. That's sad. Scripture never says that. Paul says the opposite. Love, and it's the least of the gifts. But then on the other extreme of that one, if you've got people that overvalue the gifts, the other extreme over the other side would be, well, we don't need gifts at all. It's going to be an inward. It's like a holy huddle. We're going to focus on ourselves, our church, our four walls. It's all about us here. We don't really care about the world or unsaved people. It's us four and no more. That's another bad extreme. Once again, Calvary meets in the middle on those two extremes. Because here at Calvary, we focus, and we're focusing more and more lately on discipleship. You'll hear us talk more and more about that coming up, which can look at the first initial phase. It looks a little initial, but really the goal is to equip and send out. That would be outward. Let's look at on screen. This will help you understand what I'm getting at. This is our new mission statement, vision statement. I've heard it called both, so you can use whichever term you like, but Unless Pastor Dave didn't like one of them, I don't know. But to me, it's kind of interchangeable. Either way, it's an important subject. Look what it says. We exist, that's us, we here at Calvary Chapel, all of our campuses, exist to glorify God so that he gets all the credit by being what? A loving, I bolded that on purpose, a loving community. That's our topic we're on. So it starts by loving others. And look what happens when we do that. People are saved, set free, discipled, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then sent out, sent out to go outward, to bring others to the same thing we found ourselves, to empower and equip others to find what 
it's paying it forward. It's really grace. It's us showing that same grace that we talked about in the first part of the night. This is our, our thing, our, our motto, our vision, our mission. And you're part of that because you're here tonight. You're the veteran crowd on Wednesday night. Let's go back to Corinthians, though, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to skip down to verse 4, and I'm going to read what I call the wedding verses. Look what it says in verse 4, because we use these at weddings a lot. You'll know these. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in the evil, but rejoices in the truth. Once again, this is that, it's not agapao, this is the noun form, this is the agape. But we know these, but I'm going to look at them on screen a different way. Let's flip them to 180. Let's look at what love is not. Love is not envious, arrogant, proud, rude, cliquish, not focused inward, a holy huddle, not overly sensitive, I don't get offended by every little thing. Love is not unforgiving. Love is forgiving. And love is not happy with the evil in our world. That is our role model. Now, let's put Jesus' name in that list. Instead of love, take the word love out of your mind and put Jesus is not envious, right? Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not proud, rude, cliquish, sensitive, unforgiving, happy with evil. Okay, that makes sense, right? Okay, here's the, we're going to ramp it up a notch. Put your name on the top of that screen. I'll just use mine, and you can correct me if I'm failing, because we're not perfect, remember? Dave, put your name. Joe, Mary, Sue, Sarah is not envious, arrogant, proud, rude, cliquish, sensitive, unforgiving, happy with evil. There's our challenge. Be more like Jesus. Don't we need the Holy Spirit's help to do some of those? Absolutely. But that's really our goal, to be more like Jesus. Back to our Corinthians. Let's do verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. Here's Paul describing kind of how he is. When I was a child, he's talking not physical, he's talking spiritual. I talk like a child, I thought like a child, I reason like a child. When I became a man or a woman, if you're a lady here tonight... I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, Paul is not saying we become spiritually mature. We don't need gifts. What he's trying to tell us is don't overemphasize the gifts at the expense of love. It's in context with what he talked about, that clanging cymbal, banging gong. Then in verse 12, he says, for now, he's, we, all of us, Paul included, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And he means poorly. Then later, when we'll see face to face. Now that I know in part, then later I shall know fully. And the then, by the way, is when he meets Jesus face to face, even as I am fully known. And we don't really get this illustration because we have great mirrors in our bathroom and our wherever. Maybe you're a lady tonight, you have one in your purse. The mirrors in these days would be a polished piece of brass. It was, even on the best day, it was a poor reflector. You could comb your hair, but you don't put on makeup with it. It was a poor mirror. That's why he says, I see poorly as in a reflection of a mirror. Their mirror was not our mirror. But his point is, one day he'll see everything crystal clear when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes back. One day we will too. But he's not saying we don't need gifts. Let's finish this section and we'll be done. Verse 13 says, because at that point, most of those gifts won't be necessary. Think about it. We won't need tongues anymore. We won't need miracles. We'll be in heaven where everything's perfect. New body, new everything. We won't need healing because we'll be healed when we get there. But verse 13, look what he says is left. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Love being the last primary one. But look what he says, too, to prove it. The greatest of these is what? Love. So he's not also saying when we all finally get to be what we call spiritually mature, we don't need love anymore, or we don't need faith or hope anymore. No, he's just saying the greatest would be love. Because think about one day when I die. Think of when I go to heaven. I'll just use me because maybe death doesn't sound too good to you. 
When I die, I will go to heaven. I will see Jesus face to face. I won't need any gifts, but I will still have my faith, my hope, and my love. Because don't you love Jesus? Don't you love God? Don't you love the Holy Spirit? You're going to have love because you'll still be there with him. And if I go first before my family, unless it's the rapture and the second coming where we all go together, if I go first in a natural death, I will still have my faith and my hope that my family and my friends and some of you will come behind me when it's your turn to die. We'll still have faith, hope, and love. But the rest of them will become, in a way, unnecessary. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. But let's go back to his last statement. The greatest of these is love. Love for our Christian brothers and sisters, love for the unlovable, love for everybody, just like God loved us. But we need help to do that. So we're going to close. I'm going to pray for us to just be more like Jesus. But if you need salvation, maybe you're here tonight, you've heard some of these verses, you realize either I've walked away, I'm, Jesus is not my Lord. I like the Savior, but really, if I'm honest, he's not my Lord. We can pray a prayer tonight that would let you talk to God and fix that. I'll just pray with you and encourage you and lead you in some words if you like. So come and see me tonight after we pray. But for the rest of us, let's just pray to be empowered by God to do these two things. Show more grace, show more love, and last commercial, don't miss next week about the power of the Holy Spirit. I think you got it by now, but let's pray. Lord, tonight we love you so much. Thank you as we sang on our opening song for your mercy, but also, Lord, thank you for that grace, that extra bonus that we definitely didn't deserve but you loved us first, you pursued us, you gave it to us, Lord. Scripture says you chased us even as we were running away. So Lord, help us to have that same grace as we treat others around us, even the ones that we might consider unlovable, undeserving, because Lord, we didn't deserve it either. Also, Father, help us show your love to all those around us. Give us your love. Holy Spirit, empower us to be more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us to love the world around us like you loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen.